Book One of the Spirit of the Laws. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Benjamin Giddens. The Spirit of the Laws by Charles de Second, Baron de Montesquieu. Translated by Thomas Nugent. Book One of Laws in General. Chapter One of the relation of laws to different beings. Laws, in their most general signification, are the necessary relations arising from the nature of things. In this sense, all beings have their laws, the deity his laws, the material world its laws, the intelligences superior to man their laws, the beast their laws, and man his laws. They who assert that a blind fatality produced the various effects we behold in this world talk very absurdly, for can anything be more unreasonable than to pretend that a blind fatality could be productive of intelligence beings? There is then a prime reason, and laws of the relations subsisting between it and different beings and the relation of those to one another. God is related to the universe as creator and preserver. The laws by which he created all things are those by which he preserves them. He acts according to these rules, because he knows them. He knows them because he made them, and he made them because they are in relation to his wisdom and power. Since we observe that the world, though formed by the motion of matter and void of understanding, subsists so long a succession of ages, its motions must certainly be directed by invariable laws. And could we imagine another world, it must also have constant rules, or it would inevitably perish. Thus the creation which seems an arbitrary act, supposes laws as invariable as those of the fatality of the atheists. It would be absurd to say that the creator might govern the world without those rules, since without them it could not subsist. These rules are a fixed and invariable relation. In bodies moved, the motion is received, increased, diminished, or lost, according to the relations of the quantity of matter and velocity. Each diversity is uniformity, each change is constancy. Particular intelligent beings may have laws of their own making, but they had some likewise which they never made. Before there were intelligent beings, they were possible. They had therefore possible relations and consequently possible laws. Before laws were made, there were relations of possible justice. To say that there is nothing just or unjust but what is commanded or forbidden by positive laws is the same as saying that before the describing of a circle all the radii were not equal. We must therefore acknowledge relations of justice antecedent to the positive law by which they are established. As for instance, if human societies existed, it would be right to conform to their laws. If there were intelligent beings that had received a benefit of another being, they ought to show their gratitude. If one intelligent being had created another intelligent being, the latter ought to continue in its original state of dependence. If one intelligent being injures another, it deserves a retaliation, and so on. But the intelligent world is far from being so well governed as the physical. For though the former has also its laws, which are of their own nature and are invariable, it does not conform to them so exactly as the physical world. This is because, on the one hand, particular intelligent beings are of a finite nature, 
and confequently liable to error, and on the other hand, their nature requires them to be free agents. Hence they do not fteadily conform to their primitive laws, and even thofe of their own inftituting they frequently infringe. Whether brutes be governed by the general laws of motion, or by a particular movement, we cannot determine. Be that as it may, they have not a more intimate relation to God than the rest of the material world, and sensation is of no other use to them in the relation they have either to other particular beings or to themselves. By the allurement of pleasure they preserve the individual, and by the same allurement they preserve their species. They have natural laws, because they are united by sensation. Positive laws they have none, because they are not connected by knowledge and yet they do not invariably conform to their natural laws these are better observed by vegetables that have neither understanding nor sense brutes are deprived of the high advantages which we have but they have some which we have not they have not our hopes but they are without our fears they are subject like us to death but without knowing it even most of them are more attentive than we to self-preservation, and do not make so bad a use of their passions. Man, as a physical being, is like other bodies governed by invariable laws. As an intelligent being, he incessantly transgresses the laws established by God, and changes those of his own instituting. He is left to his private direction, though a limited being and subject, like all finite intelligences, to ignorance and error. Even his imperfect knowledge he loses, and as a sensible creature he is hurried away by a thousand impetuous passions. Such a being might every instant forget his creator. God has therefore reminded him of his duty by the laws of religion. Such a being is liable every moment to forget himself, philosophy, has provided against this by the laws of morality. Formed to live in society, he might forget his fellow creatures. Legislators have therefore, by political and civil laws, confined him to his duty. Chapter 2. Of the Laws of Nature. Antecedent to the above-mentioned laws are those of nature, so called because they derive their force entirely from our frame in existence. In order to have a perfect knowledge of these laws, we must consider man before the establishment of society. The laws received in such a state would be those of nature. The law which, impressing on our mind the idea of a creator, inclines us towards him, is the first in importance, though not in order, of natural laws. Man in a state of nature would have the faculty of knowing before he had acquired any knowledge. Plain it is that his first ideas would not be of a speculative nature. He would think of the preservation of his being before he would investigate its origin. Such a man would feel nothing in himself at first but impotency and weakness. His fears and apprehensions would be excessive, as appears from instances, were there any necessity of proving it, of savages found in forests, trembling at the motion of a leaf and flying from every shadow. In this state, Every man, instead of being sensible of his equality, would fancy himself inferior. There would therefore be no danger of their attacking one another. Peace would be the first law of nature. The natural impulse or desire which Hobbes attributes to mankind of subduing one another is far from being well founded. 
the idea of empire and dominion is fo complex, and depends on fo many other notions, that it could never be the firft which occurred to the human underftanding. Hobbes inquires, for what reafon go men armed, and have locks and keys to fatten their doors, if they be not naturally in a ftate of war? But is it not obvious that he attributes to mankind before the establishment of society what can happen but in consequence of this establishment, which furnishes them with motives for hostile attacks and self-defence? Next, to a sense of his weakness, man would soon find that of his wants. Hence another law of nature would prompt him to seek for nourishment. Fear, I have observed, would induce men to shun one another, but the marks of this fear being reciprocal would soon engage them to associate. Besides, this association would quickly follow from the pleasure one animal feels at the approach of another of the same species. Again, the attraction arising from the difference of sexes would enhance this pleasure, and the natural inclination they have for each other would form a third law. Beside the sense or instinct which man possesses in common with brutes, he has the advantage of acquired knowledge, and thence arises a second tie which brutes have not. Mankind have therefore a new motive of uniting, and a fourth law of nature results from the desire of living in society. Chapter 3 of Positive Laws As soon as man enters into a state of society, he loses the sense of his weakness equality ceases, and then commences the state of war. Each particular society begins to feel its strength, whence arises a state of war between different nations. The individual likewise of each society becomes sensible of their force, hence the principal advantages of this society they endeavour to convert to their own emolument, which constitutes a state of war between individuals. These two different kinds of states give rise to human laws. Considered as inhabitants of such great a planet, which necessarily contains a variety of nations, they have laws relating to their mutual intercourse, which is what we call the law of nations. As members of a society that must be properly supported, they have laws relating to the governors and the governed, and this we distinguish by the name of politic law. They have also another sort of law, as they stand in relation to each other, by which is understood the civil law. The law of nations is naturally founded on this principle, that different nations ought in time of peace to do one another all the good they can, and in time of war as little injury as possible, without prejudicing their real interests. The object of war is victory, that of victory is conquest, and that of conquest preservation. From this and the preceding principle, all those rules are derived which constitute the law of nations. All countries have a law of nations, not excepting the Iraqis themselves, though they devour their prisoners, for they send and receive ambassadors, and understand the rights of war and peace. The mischief is that their law of nations is not founded on true principles. Besides the law of nations relating to all societies, there is a polity or civil constitution for each particularly concerned. No society can subsist without a form of government. The united strength of individuals, as Gravener well observe, 
constitutes what we call the body politic. The general ftrength may be in the hands of a fingle perfon or of many. Some think that nature having eftablifhed paternal authority, the moft natural government was that of a fingle perfon. But the example of paternal authority proves nothing. For if the power of a father relates to a fingle government, that of brothers after the death of a father, and that of cousins, German after the decease of brothers, refer to a government of many. The political power necessarily comprehends the union of several families. Better is it to say that the government most conformable to nature is that which bits degrees with the humour and disposition of the people in whose favour it is established. The strength of individuals cannot be united without a conjunction of all their wills. The conjunction of those wills, as Gravener again very justly observes, is what we call the civil state. Law, in general, is human reason, inasmuch as it governs all the inhabitants of the earth. The political and civil laws of each nation ought to be only the particular cases in which human reason is applied. They should be adapted in such a manner to the people for whom they are framed, that it should be a great chance if those of one nation suit another. They should be in relation to the nature and principle of each government, whether they form it, as may be said of politic laws, or whether they support it, as in the case of civil institutions. They should be in relation to the climate of each country, to the quality of its soils, to its situation and extent, to the principal occupation of the natives, whether husbandmen, huntsmen, or shepherds. They should have relation to the degree of liberty which the constitution will bear, to the religion of the inhabitants, to their inclinations, riches, numbers, commerce, manners, and customs. In fine, they have relations to each other, as also to their origin, to the intent of the legislator, and to the order of things on which they are established in all of which different lights they ought to be considered. This is what I have undertaken to perform in the following work. These relations I shall examine, since all these together constitute what I call the spirit of laws. I have not separated the political from the civil institutions, as I do not pretend to treat of laws, but of their spirit. And as this spirit consists in the various relation which the laws may bear to different objects, it is not so much my business to follow the natural order of laws as that of these relations and objects. I shall first examine the relations which laws bear to the nature and principle of each government, and as this principle has a strong influence on laws, I shall make it my study to understand it thoroughly, and if I can but once establish it, the laws will soon appear to flow thence as from their sources. I shall proceed afterwards to other and more particular relations. End of chapter 3 and end of book 1 of The Spirit of Laws.